We're in 1 Corinthians 13, and we continue to explore this incredibly rich chapter that has explained to us what agape love really is. But it really isn't as much about agape love describing who God is as much as it is describing how the people of God are to relate to and interact with one another specifically in the context of the execution of spiritual gifts, but also in how we are to generally live our lives with one another. We had a men's breakfast yesterday, and we had a handful of guys that came, and um, Greg is often very good at saying things that strike me as profound, although he would not say that it is profound, but it's the interesting how we can sharpen one another and encourage one another, and the basic idea was that when we're out in the world and we're encountering people, we tend to see them as in our way, rather than seeing them as people in need of God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. You remember saying that? And it's true. So as we think about this ideal of love, first of all, it's helpful for us to remember the God of love who has chosen to love us. And that because He is the ideal of love and because He has loved us the way that He has and because He has given us His Spirit to do what He has called us to do, you and I possess a capacity to love beyond what we might think even is possible. And I brought back to one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, to Him who is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. You and I possess a capacity to love beyond what we would even begin to think is possible. But because God has given us His Spirit, because God is love, because God has shown us what real love is, we have the capacity to love. So in our outline, we're looking at the context for spiritual gifts. And Paul has talked about the supremacy of love and how we are to execute our spiritual gifts within the body of Christ for the mutual benefit and edification of His church by which we are a part of only through His grace. The first three verses of this chapter say, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And so right out of the gate, as Paul talks about the supremacy of love, it is clear that love is more important than whatever spiritual gift we have to use in the ministry of the church. It's more important than anything else. And so Paul paints this picture of the supremacy of love and he does, he does it by using these greatly exaggerated examples of giftedness to make his point. If I have faith who is to remove a mountain, can't be done. It's not really literally what Paul is talking about what Jesus talked about when he compared the faith of a mustard seed. But if we don't have love, 
what we do, what we, how we serve it, it means nothing. So Paul uses these greatly exaggerated examples to make this point. Now last week we looked at these qualities of love and Paul will provide 15 characteristics of love and it's very important that we don't look at this as 15 different expressions of love, but 15 characteristics or qualities of love that are used to define love in its complexity, in its completeness. So these characteristics are expressed in how we are to relate to people, not so much according to circumstances or events, and what they do is they define what love is and what love is not. We're going to go through this very, very quickly so as to complete what we have today. So the first thing that we read is love is patient. Patience is the ability to be inconvenienced or taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset or angry. I thought about this when Peter, when Jesus taught his principle on forgiveness, and he said, forgive your... Peter says, how many times should I forgive my brother? He's looking for a number. Five times? That would be great. Ten times? That's really unthinkable. What did Jesus say? Seventy times seven. Perfect times perfect, meaning we forgive without end. And so patience is the ability to be inconvenienced over and over and over without being upset or angry. How well do we exude loving patience? Let her be. Love is kind. Just as patience will absorb anything from anyone, kindness will give anything to others, even to those we don't like so much. So to be kind means to be useful, serving, and gracious. It is active goodwill. And there have been times in my life where I believe that people have acted, they've been prompted by God to do something for me, and I was surprised because I didn't really think they liked me all that much. I didn't think they cared about me. I didn't think they would want to do an act of kindness towards me. But when they did that thing... I was very quickly convicted of the kind of love that they were expressing that is absent oftentimes in my own life. Love is kind, giving anything to others, even those we don't like so much. Letter C. This begins the list of eight negatives that Paul will use to describe what love is not. Love is not jealous. Love and jealousy are mutually exclusive. Where one is, the other cannot be. The root word for jealousy is to have a strong desire. So envy is a close relative of jealousy. And it basically has two forms. Jealousy is I want what someone else has. And the more egregious sinful form of that is I'm going to feel negatively towards the person who has the thing that I do not have that I want so Zealously. Letter D, love does not brag. Bragging is the other side of jealousy. Jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what we have. So jealousy puts others down. Bragging builds us up. Letter E, love is not arrogant. So to be arrogant is the twin brother of being proud. Some of the most severe scriptural warnings in all of scripture have to do with prideful arrogance. So pride again is one of the seven things listed that God hates. Love by contrast is not arrogant. 
Letter F, love is not rude. So while not as serious as bragging or arrogance, rudeness is the result of lovelessness. And this is what I think we see lived out so consistently in the world around us. Rudeness does not care enough for those it is around to act politely. It cares nothing for the feelings or the sensitivities of others. It is an inconsiderate, ungracious lifestyle where you are an obstacle, you're in my way, and I don't want to help you. I don't want to be kind or considerate to you. I just want you to go away. Well, that's not what love is. Letter G, love is not selfish. Selfishness is caring nothing for the well-being of others. It is an emphasis on personal rights to the neglect of the needs or the rights of other people. This is why we get so offended when somebody cuts in line or cuts us off on the road or does something to us that offends us. It is because we are engrossed in selfishness. And the flip side of that letter H is love is not easily angered. So this is getting angry at others when they say or do something that displeases us or when they prevent us from having our own way. I know you've all been around toddlers. Toddlers don't like to share. It's me, mine, gimme, gimme, I want, you can't have. And you could have an obscure toy in the corner of a room, and the toddler could care nothing about that toy until somebody else picks it up, and then all of a sudden they want that toy, they got to have that toy, and they're going to take that toy, and then they're easily angered when they can't get it. They lash out, they act out, they throw a, te- throw a temper tantrum. So again, being easily angered is a preoccupation with self to the ignorance or the neglect of other people. Letter I, love does not keep records. That literally means to record in a ledger. It is choosing to remember the wrongs done against us by keeping a mental ledger of the who, the what, the when, and the where of these offenses... I've been in churches where people would walk down certain hallways because they wanted to avoid someone else. They didn't want to see them. They didn't want to greet them. They didn't want to have to deal with them. They wanted to forget like they were even in the church. And it's because of the freshness of the wound that was committed years and years ago. We should have short memories as Christians of the wrongs done to us because of the forgiveness that God has extended to us at the cross through the death of Christ. Now, in looking at the remaining characteristics of love, 1 Corinthians goes on to say in these final two verses we're going to look at today, verses 6 and 7, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the last negative example of what we see here, letter J in our outline, is 6A, does not rejoice in sin. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now, to rejoice in unrighteousness is to celebrate or boast in our sin or in the sin of others. Now, at face value, you might hear that and you say, well, I don't know that I've ever celebrated sin. When have I ever been guilty of doing that? Well, while the celebration of sin may seem to be absent in our lives, I believe there are at least two ways the celebration of sin is present in our ways. Number one, it is found in our choice of entertainment. 
Now, this is something that I've personally been convicted of, and I'll go through periods where I am deeply convicted by it, and periods where it doesn't seem to really affect me all that much. But here's the point that I think is principled in the celebration of unrighteousness. If we carefully examine what we watch on TV, or the movies that we go to, or the books that we read, or the music that we listen to, we may find ourselves totally unfazed by the presence of or the promotion of sin in these various forms of entertainment. Now I want to pause real quick, and I am not advocating the removal of TVs or books or magazines or music from your lives. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that for the most part, we do not examine as closely as we should the form of entertainment that we allow into our lives. I've heard John say this over and over and over again. Garbage in, garbage out. Isn't that right? When we allow immense amounts of garbage into our lives, it's going to affect what we think. It's going to affect potentially what we believe. It's certainly going to affect what we do. We have to be careful with what we allow to come into our lives. Now, by an example, and I'm not picking on anybody. I don't know your fascination of or love for, but one of the most successful book film franchises in recent history was the Harry Potter series. Now Harry, this beloved character, was a wizard at the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, and Christians by the truckloads read every book and watched every movie, and countless Christian children have grown up openly exposing themselves to something that the Bible calls evil, and that is witchcraft. Well, when you think about witchcraft, well, when, you, when you think about witchcraft, what do you think, you think about Bewitched? Do you think about, uh, I forget the character's name now, she you know, ride around on that little broom and she'd go around and, and manipulate circumstances for the good of her husband and to get herself out of jams? I mean, what do you think of when you think about witchcraft? Do you think of the occult? Do you think of, do you think of demons? Do you think of the dark powers in this world? Oh no, it's just Harry Potter and the Hogwarts School of Wizardry. They're harmless characters, right? I remember years ago, Saturday Night Live, John Lovett did a character, and he did the character of Satan, and he wore this silly little Satan outfit with the pointy little horns and the little tail, and he was this funny, light-hearted character, and that by and large is what the world sees Satan as. This beloved, funny little creature, and we forget that Satan is a real entity, that he is the king of these dark forces, that he roars around the world like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, that he appears as an angel of light to deceive us and lead us into sin. But hey, we're talking about, we're talking about Harry Potter. It's not that big a deal, right? Think about the actors or the authors or the, or the musicians themselves and the lives they live. We, we rejoice in the birth of their illegitimate children. We celebrate the happiness that they found in their third or their fourth or their fifth marriage. We listen to every word they say because they are quote-unquote influencers. And, well, what did they say about that? What do they think about that? Oh, they're condemning that politician. He must not be a very good person. I'll give you an example, and I was really reluctant to bring this up. But you've heard, you've had to have heard of the Kardashian family. Have you heard of the Kardashians? 
Do you know how the Kardashians got their fame in our world today? Kim, I don't know that she's the eldest daughter. She's one of the daughters. But following in the footsteps of a young lady by the name of Paris Hilton, Kim Kardashian came to worldwide fame through the release of an explicit video that showed her engaged and acts of physical intimacy. And it was accidentally leaked into the world and two years later she's one of the most famous individuals in the United States of America and all of her sisters most of her sisters have illegitimate children, they're on their second or third marriages they, pr- they promote all kinds of ungodly lifestyle and people hang on their every thought and their every word as if God himself is speaking We don't think about the people behind the form of entertainment that we allow to come into our lives and affect us in some form or fashion. We idolize the people that can dunk a ball or hit a baseball or throw a football or run really fast. And we idolize these people regardless of what they believe about Jesus or the Bible or morality in general. They can oppose every value conservative Christians hold dearly to, but we don't give a second thought as to what they stand for and what they do with their lives and with their money. Now, I didn't research this to verify this, and I can't give you any percentages, but I'll tell you this. The overwhelming majority of the Hollywood A-listers are as morally liberal as you can get, and they support people who promote this liberal lifestyle, and we go to every movie, we hang on their every word, we celebrate, we buy the things they promote, and we give no thought to it at all. This is a form of celebrating unrighteousness because we allow these people to have a foothold in our lives when we probably shouldn't. Now, again, I'm not advocating that we throw out the TV or we can all sports or we burn the books. I'm not saying that at all. But we probably need to evaluate what form of entertainment we allow into our homes so that we aren't celebrating unrighteousness. Do you know, until the early 90s, it was unheard of to have a homosexual character prominent in any network TV show. And if you fast forward to our day and age today, the homosexual characters are the, are the most normal, they're the most balanced, they're the most likable, and whatever Christian character might be portrayed is just a dimwit, he's a radical, he's just, he's just so ignorant that he should not even be able to breathe air. And if you think this does not affect the world around us, you're sorely mistaken because it does. Now, the second way that we commonly rejoice in unrighteousness is by participating in gossip. Now, where did that come from? (laughs) Well, what is gossip? Do you think gossip takes place in our small church of 50-ish? You better believe it does. Gossip has destroyed more relationships in the church than probably anything else. If gossipers had no audience, no harm could be done. But that isn't the case. Oftentimes, gossip is presented 
in a way that we want to, quote-unquote, prayerfully acknowledge these issues, and we want, to, we want to be spiritual and pray about them, and so we relay the sin or the problem or the hurts of others in such a way that it pushes them down and it elevates ourselves in such a way that we're better than them. The bottom line is we should never say something about a person that we would not say to that person. Have you ever seen a conversation taking place and you come around the corner and all of a sudden... Have you? It's an indication that there's a conversation that's probably not necessarily confidential as much as it is in the area of gossip. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, which is the purpose of spiritual gifts, according to the need of the moment. Why? So that it will give grace to those who hear. Our conversations ought to build up the person we're talking to or the individuals we're talking about. If we're guilty of saying something that we would not say to that person individually or we would not want them to hear us saying, there's a really, really good chance we shouldn't be saying it at all. So here's a solution. If someone comes to you and says, did you hear about such and such? No, and I'm not going to hear about such and such because that's gossip and I don't want to be a party to gossip. Yeah, but this is really this is really big. We, you, no. No. And we just don't do that. I mean, did you hear about such and such? No, I didn't hear about such and such. Well, what did you hear about such and such? I did. It's not what I heard about such and such. And we just poison one another with this stuff that doesn't need to be said. If you've got something that just has to be said, you know, we've got a Heavenly Father who is with us all the time, who we can say anything to. And if you want to pour that out in a private prayer moment, by all means do so, but don't do it with someone else because it's celebrating unrighteousness. So to rejoice in sin or to rejoice in the sin of others or to allow sin to become a form form of entertainment is not consistent with love because love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Now the flip side to that The last five traits we're going to be looking at all presented in a positive letter K. Love rejoices in the truth. So as a contrast to love not rejoicing in sin, this indicates that love rejoices in God's way of righteous living. You know what? As we think about gossip and you've got all of these things that you really wanted to tell others to, you can bite your tongue and you can hold that inside and you can leave the church and say, praise God, I rejoice in the righteousness of not saying what I just had to say. Because that's righteous living. Righteous living is celebrating what God celebrates. It's loving what God loves. 
Love rejoices in every spiritual victory won. Love rejoices in every forgiveness offered. Love rejoices in every act of kindness. It is never happy when someone else fails. It is never happy in dragging someone else down. Love stands on the side of the gospel and love looks for mercy and justice for all people, including those with whom we disagree or may not like a lot or may in our own estimation need to learn a valuable lesson. It is loving what God loves, doing what God approves of, and avoiding those things that God instructs us to avoid. That's what it means to rejoice in righteousness. Now, as we move on, I'll say this. If there's something going on in your life, in a relationship, and it's just not escaping you, here's what you need to do. You need to sit down with the individual and you need to have an honest biblical conversation with them and you you need to allow love and mercy to cover over that and you need to find reconciliation and resolution to the problem. Confess your sin and pray that God would make you, help you love that person more than you do. That's the solution. It's not talking to others about it. It's talking to the individual so that there can be real biblical resolution come to that problem. Now, the last four characteristics that we're going to look at, Paul provides a summary and a conclusion to this description of love. Now, this is really important, and this was very, very um, insightful to me in my study. And so, a lot of times in, in biblical writing, they have these... Uh, these things called chiastic structure, and there are these things that complement one another by opposing, and it's really big in the Psalms. And so this is somewhat of an example of that. So as we look at verse 7, let me read verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So the first and the fourth verb that is used here, bears and endures, are focused on the present. The middle two, believes and hopes, are focused on the future. And so by putting these together in the way that Paul does through the inspiration of the Spirit, he provides this striking conclusion to this description of love. So it's really important also to understand that the all things here are understood to mean all things acceptable to God's righteousness, all things according to God's will, everything within the Lord's divine tolerance. Now, this will make more sense as we go through this, but the all things cannot be understood to mean all sin, all evil, all unrighteousness, etc. If we understood it that way, it would paint a picture of love that is passive, which is not the picture Paul was painting. Love is active. This is what love does. This is what love does not do. So if we were to understand the all things as a tolerance of sin and evil, it would make love passive. And that's not what love is. If that were so, then love would stand for nothing. And love would be rooted in what the world thinks, and that is tolerance. 
You know, if you love someone, you'll just kind of let them alone, let them do their own thing. You won't judge them. You won't confront them. You won't condemn them. You'll just let them be as happy as they want to be, no matter as wrong as they might be. And you'll let them suffer the consequences of their actions. Now, is that good parenting? No, it's terrible parenting. You always try to do what's best for the child. So love does what's best for people. And as we look at these focuses on the the current events and the future events, I think this explanation makes a lot more sense than it might on the surface of our reading these things. So these qualities are very closely related and there's overlap within them. And they seem to they seem to emphasize what Paul values most about love. So here we go in letter L, it bears the strain. Now that's a unique way of explaining what we read here in verse 7a, where love bears all things. Now, bearing the strain really communicates more accurately the idea that is in this Greek verb, the word stego. Paul is the only New Testament author that uses this verb, and he uses it three other places. The first time he uses it is a little bit earlier in this in this letter to the Corinthians. We'll look at that in just a second. All three times it has the same meaning, and it carries the meaning of bearing up against difficulties. So when Paul is teaching about Christian liberty, and we looked at that over a number of weeks, Paul talked about his willingness to set aside his own personal rights for financial assistance from those that he was ministering to. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 9.12. If others share the right over you, do we not more? So uh, they were willing to share financial support with others who were ministering amongst them. And so Paul says, if they share the right with you, do we not do we not more? We originated the work, we planted the church, we won many of you to Christ. Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but what? We endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Now, where Paul uses the word endure here, it is the same word stego in the Greek, But it's not the same word that is in the Greek for verse 7d, which is also translated endure. So they have a different meaning. But what Paul means here is to endure the strain of not insisting on my rights being met by getting financial support from you while I minister to you. So in doing so, by by bearing the strain, by not insisting on his rights... Paul's life was much more difficult. He endured more challenges. But he was willing to bear up against these difficulties for the sake of the gospel. Now here's where I think it makes the most sense. Love bears the strain of love. Think about that. Love bears the strain of love. Let me pause. Is it easy for us to love? No, it's not easy to love. Is it sometimes difficult for us to love? Yeah, sometimes it's difficult for us to love. Sometimes is it just absolutely, in our own estimation, impossible to love? When we've been wronged or offended over and over and over? Well, remember, love is patient. Love is kind. So Paul goes on to say here that love bears the strain of love 
when our natural inclination is to not love or to stop loving and not do what is right in God's eyes. So when it's difficult to love people, we are to bear the strain of love. Do you not wish that that it was easier to love people? Yeah, I do. And I have to bear up against the strain of love. So the question is, when we are expected, based upon what the Bible teaches, when we're expected to love patiently and to show kindness and to bear up against the strain of love, what is it we are going to do? Well, God, you understand who I am. You've made me this way. You understand how tired I am. You understand how bad the day was and how hard my blank is and, and how this, that, and the other. And we, we list this big, enumerate this big list of excuses why we can't love, we shouldn't have to love, and we just don't have the capacity to love. My God. will enable us to strengthen us to do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Isn't that right? Isn't that what it says? You see, when when we consciously make a choice to not love, we're simply acknowledging our lack of the capacity to love, and that's when we have to confess our sin to the Lord. We have to pray that He would cleanse us from that bitterness or that resentment, that He would give to us a heart of love and forgiveness, giving us a greater capacity to love in the way you have loved me. Do you bear the strain of love or do you bail out because it's just so difficult? This is the idea of bearing all things. Love bears the strain of love. Now, since this has an overlap with endure, this is side one of that coin, and we'll look at endure in just a moment. So love bears the strain of love. Letter M, love trusts. Letter 7B says, love believes all things. Now, Paul does not mean that love always believes the best about everything and everyone, right? You fool me once, shame on me, shame on you. You fool me twice, shame on me. Isn't that right? We don't, we're not being expected to believe the best about everything and everyone. Well, you know that guy has lied to me seven or eight times, and I believe it's going to be different this time. Well, it may not be different. So this is not what it means. Believing all things is about trusting the one who calls us to love others and it is living out that love for others as a reflection of our trust in Him. This is why love can bear the strain of love and endure because our love is rooted in our trust of God. Have you ever thought how difficult it's going to be to trust the individual 
that you're being asked to love who maybe has wronged you or treated you poorly? See, it's not the question. The question is trusting the one who asks you, expects you, empowers you to love this one as an expression of what we know about his love. What is the great commandment? Love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and to love others when you want to, when you feel like it, when you didn't have a really bad week, when you feel like they deserve it. No, we're to love others as we love ourselves. So, This is about trusting God to love others in the way that He has commanded us to because God is going to enable us to bear the strain of love. Letter N. It is confident. Verse 7c, love hopes all things. So this is not about hoping for the best. And those around us, it's not hoping that there would be a change of circumstance. It's about maintaining the hope set before us by the one to whom we have entrusted our lives and our future. So remember, believing, trusting, and being confident or hoping are paired together in the future sense. So it is having a confidence and the one to whom we have entrusted our lives and our eternity. We are empowered by that eschatological hope for our future to take the risk of loving those around us in the here and now. What is the eschatological hope? It is the hope of eternity. It's the hope of God completing all things in me and perfecting all things around me and enabling me to see Him as He really is and putting an end to the misery that I call life in this world that is so ungodly and filled with such unrighteousness. So it is love is confident because we're confident in Him. The one in whom we trust. The one who enables us to bear the strain of love. Romans 15.13 says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, trusting and having confidence, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Abounding in hope. Not wishful thinking, but confidence. Lastly, letter O, it preserves, or excuse me, it perseveres. Verse 7 ends with, it endures all things. Love never gives up. It never quits. It never dies. It never comes to a point of extinction. It perseveres or endures through all the challenges of this life and finds itself alive and well in the ages to come. That's what it means to endure. It doesn't mean that you just, okay, God, I'm just going to stick it out. I don't like this and I want this to change and I'm just going to get buried under. That's not what it means at all. Love endures all things. 
Like Christ on the cross, love endures scorn, it endures failure, it endures ingratitude. This is why Paul will say in verse 8, love never fails. Verse 7 really is an amazing summary to what Paul has said about love. It bears the strain of love. It exhibits great trust in God. It exudes an an inexhaustible hope in God. And it endures because of the future that we have with God. That's what love is. That's what love does. But to be honest with ourselves, loving people is the hardest thing we're ever going to be asked to do because people are unlovable. Do you consider yourself to be unlovable? Well, you know, I know I'm not perfect. I know I've got my faults. I know i got my shortcomings. But, you know, I'm a pretty good guy. You know, I'm not nearly as bad as a lot of people that I know. And, you know, I really try my best to do good. And, you know, I'm, I'm some of this some of the time. I'm not all of this all the time. Surely I've got a long way to go. But, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lovable. <laughs> We're not. We're just not lovable. There's, there's a reason the saying was invented some time ago when, when a, a husband or a wife introduced their spouse and said, this is my better half. And typically it's the man introducing the woman. This is my better half. And people say that in honesty because this person knows me inside and out and has done more than just put up with it, but has just demonstrated a level of love and commitment that I've not seen in anybody else before. We are not as lovable as we think we are. And that's not an indictment against you. It's an indictment against me and us together because we are so saturated by our sin and our selfishness that we often don't see it. And the way that we measure love is not by agape love, but it's by how well someone deserves it or is entitled to it based upon my capacity and the way I feel about it and the week that I've had, etc., etc., etc. So the usage of our spiritual gifts is to be done in love. Love for God, love for His church, love for other people. Love is all about setting the priority of self aside so that God can do in us and through us what He desires to do. The work of love in and through us is God's work It's His work. It's His responsibility. But we have to make the choice to give ourselves over to His work. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Walk in love. How? Just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for you an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So we love one another as a sacrifice, as a fragrant aroma to the God who has loved us in ways that we just won't fully understand until we stand before Him and see Him as He really is. It should be noted that our ability to love is not natural. It is spiritual. 
It is the first quality listed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love is the byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit. And the work of the Holy Spirit is dictated by how obediently we walk with God. And this is expressed by Jesus Himself. In John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What do you think Jesus meant when He said, apart from Me, you can do nothing? Apart from Him, you can contribute nothing of spiritual value. The more closely we stay connected to Him, the more deeply we'll be able to love one another, the more we'll recognize just how unlovable we are, and we will recognize, hopefully, with a greater humility, the greatness of the name that is above every name, that has loved us unconditionally, completely, eternally. That's the standard. That's agape love. Father, we acknowledge that we have failed when it comes to 